There's a story about some blind men feeling an elephant uh, trying to work out what it is. It's an old uh, Buddhist story. One man is holding the elephant's tail and he says, an elephant is like a piece of rope. One man is feeling the elephant's leg. He says the elephant is like a pillar. One man has the elephant's trunk. He says the elephant is like a hose. The point is, each one of them think they know what an elephant is, but none of them can see the whole elephant. Now, some people say that's what it's like when it comes to finding out about God. Every religion has a bit of the truth, but no one has it all. Buddhism might have the tail. Islam might have the leg. Christianity might have the ear. But none of us can claim to have it all. And that sounds good in a way, doesn't it? It sounds humble. It sounds nice to think that we all have a bit of the truth. But is that what God is like? Is he like a jigsaw piece that jigsaw puzzle that we can put together? Are we just blind people trying to work out what God is like? Can anyone actually claim to know God? What if God introduced himself to us? What if God came down and said, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. What if God opened the eyes of blind people and actually revealed himself? Now that is what the book of Exodus is about. It's about that we can know God. Now, there's a lot of big events. Caesar parted. The most powerful king in the world at that time is humiliated. Armies are defeated. The baby Moses is born and rescued. God appears visibly to the entire nation of Israel. It's a huge book, but it's all there to show us who God is. And there's this phrase that comes out all the way through the book of Exodus, and we're going to be seeing it week after week, that you may know that I am the Lord. And over the next few weeks, we're going to find out various things about God, that he's powerful, that he's gracious, that he's a God who rescues, that he's holy, that he wants to be with his people. All these lessons, Exodus is all about who God is. This morning, though, we're picking it up in Exodus chapter 1. That was just read for us. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob, Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. It's a funny way for a book to start with a list of names. That's because Exodus is not episode one. Exodus is episode two. Genesis is the first episode, and in Genesis, God made some big promises to a man named Abraham, and those promises are sitting behind the entire book of Exodus. God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. Okay, that's the nation that we're going to be hearing about in the book of Exodus. God promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. Pretty good promise. And Genesis ended with Abraham's great-grandchildren going to Egypt, and there they lived happily ever after. 
Not quite. Episode 2, Exodus, opens and there's some trouble brewing. In Egypt, there's been a change in government. And the new government brings in an immigration policy which is not very kind to immigrants. In fact, from now on, Israelite immigrants, the Israelites who've come to live in Egypt, will become slaves. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Then a new king, who didn't know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. This is the Israelite invasion into Egypt and Pharaoh is worried about the Israelites reproducing and so his plan is to oppress them. Let's read on. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. Verse 13, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. See what's happening? Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, they started off as 70 people. They moved into Egypt, but they're growing. And the Egyptian king is worried. The Egyptian king thinks they're going to get taken over by the Israelites, so they want to stop them. Pharaoh is so worried that he announces that he will kill every Israelite male baby. The last verse of chapter 1. Did you notice that? They are now throwing babies into the Nile River and drowning them just because of their skin colour. Read on into chapter 2. One baby escapes, Moses, he's hidden in the bulrushes, but all the other Hebrew babies are massacred. Now, if you were one of God's people in that situation, what would you be thinking? What is God doing? You're reading the Bible to your kids at night. You tell them about these great promises to great-great-grandfather Abraham and they say, Mum, why is God letting all the babies be killed? What would you say? What happened to all the promises to Abraham? What about that memory verse we learnt? Those who curse you will be cursed. What's happening? And so they desperately cry out to God for help. 2 verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God hears his people's cry. What will he do? Well, what he will do eventually is rescue them, but not yet. Firstly, in the next chapter, chapter 3, he introduces himself to Moses because this is about more than just a rescue. Exodus is about God introducing himself to his people and it begins with Moses. Exodus chapter 3, we're up to point 2 on your outline. Moses now, rescued as a baby from being thrown into the Nile, has grown up by chapter 3. He's out looking, he's run away from Egypt, he's looking after some sheep. He sees a bush on fire 
he goes over to the bush to investigate and God speaks to him. And God says that he has heard the cries of his people. Exodus 3, verse 7. God speaking to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, the book of Exodus means way out and God is going to provide a way out for his people. This is a bit of a shock for Moses, though. God's heard the cry of his people. Great news. God's going to rescue them. Great news. Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Not so great news. Moses has already had a bit of a close run-in with Pharaoh. This reminds me of when you're praying for one of your friends to become a Christian or your family member, that you want them to know Jesus. Great prayer. You're praying that someone would talk to them about Jesus. Great prayer. Then you realise that that person might be you. You might be the one that God might, God might use to answer that prayer. And you think, whoa, me, uh, who am I to talk to someone about Jesus? That's what Moses does here. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? It's going to be a bit of a, a um, theme in this chapter. We won't follow it through, but Moses makes excuse after excuse. He doesn't want to be the one. Who am I, he says. Wrong question, though, because it's not about Moses. God can use anyone. The right question should be, who is God? Who is the one sending Moses? And that's the, the question that Moses goes on to ask in verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? It does seem like a bit of a strange question to ask God, doesn't it? God, what's your name? Just in case people ask me what your name is. Maybe you don't even think of God as having a name. I mean, we have names. Wayne, Rob, Josh. We have names, but... Does God have a name? Does God have that kind of name? Yes, he does. God has a name. And in Exodus 3, God tells Moses his name. It's in verse 15. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Have a look at your Bible closer there, chapter 3, verse 15. What do you notice about the word Lord? It's capital letters. So what? What's that about? 
Go, when you go home, read the introduction to your Bible. It's probably on the first or second page before Genesis. It says that in the original Bible, it didn't say there, the Lord, in capital letters. It actually had God's name. Like my name is Wayne, God's personal name was in there. And when you know someone's name, it's a new level of relationship, isn't it? If you deal with Marty Pace at work, he's probably Constable Pace. Is that right? Senior, senior Constable Pace. But when you're his friend, you just call him Marty. Knowing someone's name is that first step in a relationship. This here is God's name. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, my name, his name, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Keep your finger in there, but skip over, if you will, to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. <clears throat> God's talking to Moses again. God also said to Moses, chapter 6, verse 2, I am the Lord, in God's name, it's in capitals. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, his name, I did not make myself known to them. This is new. God is now inviting the nation of Israel to know him by name. So what is God's name? We don't know. That's why it's written as capital L-O-R-D instead of his actual name. Hang in, this sounds a bit like a Monty Python movie, but it is true. Israel, after they were told to remember God's name, they decided it would be better to forget it. Because in the Ten Commandments, commandment number three says, do not use the name of the Lord in vain. And so just in case they might use it wrongly, they decided not to use it at all. Genius. So I kid you not, they banned anyone from speaking God's name. And when they read from the Bible and they came across God's name, instead of pronouncing his name, they just said Hashem, which means the name. Or they said Adonai, which means the Lord instead of his actual name, because you might say his name wrongly. It was maybe got a bit superstitious. And to make things worse, just in case you might be reading along in the Bible and forget not to say his name and you're daydreaming and you accidentally read it out loud, they changed the vowels in the name. So even if you were just reading along, you wouldn't actually read it out accidentally. So what is God's name? We don't know. All we have left is the consonants. They are Y, H, W, H. Uh, we don't know the vowel, so the best guess is Yahweh. Yahweh. You might have heard that. The Jehovah's Witnesses get a bit confused. They change the Y to a J, the V to a W. They use the vowels from the word Adonai, God, because when they read it, they, they changed the vowels. They use the switched vowels from God, put them into the word Yahweh, and that's how we come up with Jehovah. We sometimes sing some songs with Jehovah. That is certainly not what his name was. Yahweh is probably the closest guess, but whatever it is, we don't know it. But here, God has spoken his name to Moses, and he wants his people to call him by name. Now, strangely, when Jesus came to make God fully known, when Jesus came down to rescue us, he didn't give us God's name again. Jesus didn't say, look, you messed that one up. Here's God's name. It is Yahweh or whatever it might be. 
Now, he actually went one step further, didn't he? When we come to know God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we don't just come to him as God, some force out there, but we don't come to him like Israel did, by name, Yahweh, or whatever it was. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says that you can call him Father, Dad. That's even one step closer. Through the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, we have a level of closeness with God that would have made the Jews outraged. They couldn't even handle his name, let alone Dad. Very rarely do I get called Mr. Connor. Sometimes it used to happen at Scripture. Most people call me Wayne. But some people, very special to me, get to call me Dad. That's the relationship we can have with God. We can know him as our Heavenly Father. Israel, though, one step back, knew him by name, Yahweh. It's not just that they knew him by name. Look at what his name means. Wayne means someone who fixes wagon wheels. Now, don't laugh. We were on holidays at Sovereign Hill, and I found out that a Wainwright, one who fixes wagon wheels, was the most highest paid occupation. It took a seven or eight year apprenticeship in the goldfields. So Wainwrights were once the job to be. Not anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Mum, for calling me Wayne. I like it. What does Yahweh mean? Well, before God gives his name to Israel, he explains what it means. Let's go back a verse, Exodus three fourteen. Oh, 13. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the explanation of his name. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and so on. I am is another form of, of the word Yahweh. It's, it's, Yahweh is, the, is basically I am. That's what it means. God's name means I am who I am. In other words, when, you're, when you come to understand who God is, the first thing you need to understand is simply that he is. I mean, if I asked you, who are you? How would you answer? You'd probably explain yourself in terms of your mother and father or where you live or what job you do or what you like. See, what, who we are, we, we sort of define ourselves by other people or other things, not God. He is who he is. Before anything else existed, he was. In uh, Revelation, he says, he was, he is, he will be. That is his name, I am. And so, so when Yahweh, God, says to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh, it's not up to Moses to say, who am I? It's for Moses to go in the name of the Lord Yahweh and deliver his message to Pharaoh. That's exactly what Moses does. Exodus chapter 5. 
Let's pick it up, though, in chapter 4, verse 29. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. They've announced God's name and God's command to Pharaoh. What is his response? Verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who's Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Moses may have God's name, but it's not just some lucky charm. God's name means nothing to Pharaoh. He's never heard of him. It's not the response Moses was hoping for. In fact, it gets worse. Pharaoh is outraged. Go home and read chapter 5. Pharaoh tells him, get back to work. You're being lazy. In fact, he gives them more work to do. Now, instead of just making bricks, which is what they were doing as slaves, he says, you've got to find your own straw and there's no extra time to do it in. And when they fail to do that, he orders them to be beaten. So much for a rescue. It is a complete disaster. Even Moses has some doubts about the whole thing. Exodus 5 down in verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, He doesn't call him Yahweh there. No capital letters there. Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Why? Why is this happening? Let's read on. Chapter 6, we won't look at it now. In the first half of chapter 6, God repeats all his promises again. He will rescue his people. He will bring them out of Egypt. Then in the second half of chapter 6, have a look there. There's this huge list of names. It's looked, it looks like there's just this random genealogy, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, inserted in. But that is there to remind us that, yes, this Moses who we're reading about is a descendant of Abraham who the promise was made to. It starts in verse 14. These were the heads of their families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, that is Abraham's grandson. So it's going back to Abraham and it ends in verse 26. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. In other words, that genealogy, it's connecting the two. This Moses who's in trouble, yes, he's actually a descendant of Abraham who the promise was made to. These people who are being beaten, yes, they are actually the descendants of Abraham who God made the promise to. It's not as if we've got the wrong people here. These are the ones who should be being blessed. So what's going on? Let's read on. Chapter 7, verse 2. Again, God reiterates again the plan to Moses. This time with one extra detail. Chapter 7, verse 2. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. This is still the plan. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Did you hear that? God will harden Pharaoh's heart 
and he will not listen to you. God could have said, I will soften Pharaoh's heart and he will listen to you. Imagine that. Moses walks up to God and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, go. End of story. Happily ever after. That's not what's going to happen, is it? Before things get better, things will get worse, far worse. Why? Why all this hardening of Pharaoh's heart and then all these signs and then the Red Sea? It does make for a good movie. I'm sure Hollywood are glad that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but it makes life very hard for the Israelites. God has heard the cries of his people. He's concerned for his people. In fact, we've seen him at work in the background. There's midwives who are disobeying Pharaoh and they're being blessed for it. There's Moses who's rescued as a baby. God is doing something and yet he will let things get worse for his people before he rescues them. How does that work? Well, it's because God's agenda here is bigger than just rescuing his people. It's that phrase that comes up again and again in the book of Exodus, that they may know that I am Yahweh. God wants to show people who he is. He said that back in chapter 6, verse 7, Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He says it again in chapter 7, verse 5, And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. It's because God wants us, God wants the people around us to know him. Now just pause for a moment. What kind of a God must this be that knowing him is better than being rescued straight away from our troubles? What kind of a God must this be that finding him is better for us than feeling better. Do you know this God? Do you know this God that is better than any trouble that you might go through? If you don't, read on. Because through the book of Exodus, God reveals himself to us. If you want to find out what God is like, it's no use just listening to the opinions of other people who may or may not have the truth, even myself. You need to look at where God has revealed himself. And as we'll see next week, God reveals himself clearly in history in a way that leaves no doubt as to the power that he has. Even his enemies, the Egyptians, are starting to see that he's the God. Even some of the Egyptians come to follow Yahweh. So keep reading. But for those of you who do know God, let me ask you this. Is knowing him the most important thing in your life. When, like Israel, life gets tough, when things go wrong or things go perhaps not the way that you would have planned if you were writing the story, do you want to know him? Do you want to know him more than you want a way out of the situation that you're in? If God has a bigger plan that perhaps you can't see, Do you trust him with it? All those other dreams that you have about your job or about your family or about your health, can you say no to all of those 
if it would mean knowing God better. Now that's a theme we see again and again through the Bible, isn't it? God is not just on about giving his people short-term pleasure and helping them avoid every kind of trial. That's never been the case. God does have a plan to see his people eventually completely free from sin, free from death, in a new creation with him. That's what he's promised us in Jesus. But in the meantime, like the nation of Israel, he's wanting us to know him better and he's wanting the people around us to come to know him too. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and everything in the earth will be laid bare. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. See, we, like Israel, need to trust God's promises. He's Yahweh. I am. And he will do what he promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are not a distant God that is out there leaving us guessing as to who you are. Thank you that back in the days of Moses you heard the cries of your people. Thank you that you came and rescued them. But Father, thank you that you didn't do it in perhaps the way they would have chosen, but thank you that you were patient and you chose to reveal yourself to them. You chose to do it in a way that left no doubt as to your power and your goodness. Father, thank you that in Jesus you have come down and rescued us. Thank you that we can have a closeness with you far greater than Israel ever dreamed of, that we can know you as our Father. But thank you that you are a good father and you have our best interests at heart. And if life is hard or the plan is not going the way that we might have planned, help us to trust you. Help us to know that your way is good. And help us to look forward to Jesus' return and live each day trusting in you. Amen.